As you're seated, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus, the book of Titus, um, Titus chapter 2. Um, so we are, we're in a series in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be ending that um, fairly soon. Um, but we looked at Titus chapter 2 on Mother's Day, and so what we're going to do is um, we're going to uh, share the other side of Titus chapter 2. So we, we looked at one particular perspective in Titus 2, and so now we're going to look at the other side of Titus chapter 2. Um, before we do, though, um, happy Father's Day um, to all of you. Um, I think I have a few pictures. Are those, are those in the slides there? No, they're not? It's okay. Well, okay, let me do this. Let me read Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at the whole passage. So let me, um, let me read this for you, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are, are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we do have, since it is Father's Day, just, uh, you know, indulge me for a minute, just a few pictures. My son, daughter-in-law, and then there's Louis. Of course, you know, Louis gets a little extra picture, as does Zeta, but adorable. It's great. Um, and um, I want to pray for um, Sam and Roman, but as well, I think we have four others of Northbridgers that are counseling or working up at Lake Ann this summer, which is, which is a, just a wonderful thing. Hold on that photo for just a, just a minute. Um, this, this has to do with, we're, we're going to be talking about the purpose of manhood, the purpose of fatherhood. And um, one of the things in family ministries that we have recognized is that we need to teach parents how to put together 
um, the activities of everyday life, even structuring activities for your children. There's a number of things that you do as fathers, as mothers, that you do with your children, whether that's a fishing trip or a biking trip or you know, just an outing. Or How do you couple that with teaching biblical truth? And this came in a, in a way where we recognized that there was this disconnect between what we teach, and we tend to look at that as Westerners in a formal, put everybody in rows, face them forward, and teach. Um, when, you actually, when you look at the, the Bible, you have examples of that. Um, but then you have examples of just the everyday, in the way, when you, when you rise up, when you sit to eat, when you're in the way teaching. So we have planned, our, our family ministries team has planned a weekend. It's over a weekend, a Friday night, a Saturday, and a Sunday, where we are sending every parent that wants to go um, to Lake Ann for the weekend. Um, and you're going to get two weeks of, of specifically trained for parents, but it's based off, it's based off actually with Deuteronomy chapter 6, what the counselors get trained in two weeks. And so that you can plan vacations for your family and say, okay, what is it that we want to teach our kids as we are together? You know, as we go to Frederick Meyer Garden for the afternoon, what is it from God's word that we want to teach our kids? And talking with Ken Riley, um, as we began to brainstorm and put this together, he, he's the director of the camp there. He's so very excited about this. Because there's one thing you probably hear about, you know, kids that come from home from camp and they have like this camp high, you know, where they like, they got it good with God and they're, and then what happens when they come home? Well, it kind of falls off, right? And one of the reasons that Ken said is that we, the whole thing that Lake Ann does is actually meant to be done in homes, right? It doesn't mean that it can't happen at camp or that there isn't a place for camp. It's good. But there's a structure that, that God gives. Actually, God gives it through Moses to a next generation of people who are going to occupy the promised land, he actually gives a structure, particular instructions to parents as to how to create that experience in your home and then have this structure that's going to, to live it out, follow it up for the rest of their days. So what it means is like, it's going to be a little crazy here on that Sunday, right? We might just have one small service like right over here as all of our parents are away in that training. But um, I guarantee that that will be profitable for homes and for church. So um, there's not details anywhere about that. You're hearing about it right now. So we will have details forthcoming um, about that. So camp at Lake Ann. And then here's a picture of our whole family. You got Mimi in there. Um, and, uh, and we're just really, really proud of our kids. And, and I know that you are the same. You're proud of your family. Um, we all have experiences in family. And that's what we're here to talk about this morning because it comes from the scriptures, right? It comes from the, the word of God. And so we're gonna look at the, the purpose of manhood in general, um, specifically since it's Father's Day, we're gonna address the purpose of fatherhood. We could summarize all of that in this way. Men, and particularly fathers, are to lead others to worship, Right? That's if you're wondering, men, what, what am I here for, right? If you're having an existential crisis this morning, wondering like, what in the world is my whole life about? That is it. You got it. Your whole purpose, what God created you to do is to lead all creation 
So people and everything in creation to worship God. That's the most important thing. And, and so um, we're, we're going to look at that this morning. I want to encourage men, okay? I want to encourage you this morning. Because here, here's, I, I have a new saying, right? I, I, was, I was just really thinking and struggling with this because I hear it often. And I think it's because we were made for a world without sin. And you'll hear this. And, it, you know, you can say it to me. It's fine. But just know there's a little voice that drives me nuts. But I have an answer. Um, it's um, people will say, oh, well, I'm not perfect, Right? So what that tells you is you're actually supposed to be, <laughs> right? You have a standard. It's a really good thing. You've got a standard, and you're saying, I don't measure up to that standard, right? It's good to have a standard. You don't measure up to that standard. Well, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be right because Jesus is our perfection, right? So we have to be right. We are living in his righteousness, we have to do right. We have to follow right. It's Jesus who is our standard, and it is Jesus who is our perfection, right? So when that little voice in your head goes, oh, you're not perfect, and that can, you know, that can either be a motivating thing or a condemning thing, just say, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be right, which means following Jesus, right? So I want you to, men, I want you to hear this, and all of us hear this as a message not condemning you, um, not beating you down. It's meant to encourage you, and I hope the tone... I hope my tone comes across as encouraging this morning, um, that you leave here encouraged in your God-given role. So as we look at Titus 2, what, what we're going to see this morning is that God created men to serve in the church in a particular way, we just said that, to lead, and in the home, to give direction and, and drive so that the work of Jesus Christ may be fully accomplished and on display for all to see. You realize that Jesus left a few things undone, right? He, he, per, he, he finished it. He said his, his work was finished, but it actually continues, and he's handing it off. Oh, what a privilege that is. Realize what a pref, precious privilege you and I have, all of us have, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords calls us to represent him. And to finish his work in his way and in his power. So let's look at the scripture. We've got three points this morning, right? So first we're going to look at the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity. It is Christ who unifies us. We have unity in the church. The purpose of unity. Um, that's what Paul addresses Titus in this particular passage. Titus um, is here in this church, and he is called to appoint elders. That's his role. And so Paul draws to his attention that there is a particular unity. What's the purpose of that unity? Um, second, we'll look at older men. Older men are to give direction. And then third, we're going to look at younger men are to give power. Okay, Younger men are to give power. They're to empower um, so those are, the, those are the three points. You'll notice in the passage, um, it mentions uh, a couple of things that we're leaving out. Part of that is we looked at women in particular in this passage in our Mother's Day message. So we're just going to look at the other side and the other roles, the purpose of unity. We see this, look at verse 1. 
Verse 1 says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The, the passage ends in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Um, what Paul is giving instructions to Titus about, and if I say Timothy, it's because I keep getting them mixed up. I know. I've done it in my head all week. So Paul gives Titus instruction about is that um, here's the church. I want you to set the church in order, and those that give order are elders. That's the main theme of this. And you think about a group, and groups go through a particular pattern, right? Um, as groups form, right, they gather, and, and you, maybe you've heard the, the terms of like group dynamics, right? They, once they, they, they form, and then they storm, well, the storming doesn't have to do with the, because there's all kinds of different groups. The storming doesn't have to do with the task or the objective. The storming has to do is, who's going to lead this group? And what role is everyone in the group going to play? The storming is interpersonal. It's a struggle, and everybody's got to figure out their role in the group. And like nothing happens in the group till everyone figures out their role. Okay, so this is... Um, we can see this in groups in the Bible. We can study it in you know, groups that, that form, that there's this interpersonal play. That's what you see here in this particular passage. Right? It's, it's several different groups. You've got older women, younger women. You've got older men and younger men. Um, you have bond servants. You have people. These, it's addressing the church, and it's addressing the homes in that church because we see a pattern that we see in two other passages in Scripture um, that it's describing the the, the house and the household rule. And so it's saying here, if these, if these groups, the church, and in particular people in the church, and, and leaders in the church, and everyone in the church, you have to know your role. And so groups form, and then they storm, and then the next is, is norm. They begin to accomplish what that purpose is. What is that purpose? And, and then they actually, like, when they've accomplished a goal, then they have to reform what's the next goal, and they go through this, this continual process. Well, well, there's a purpose, and we see that the purpose is the gospel. Look at verse 11. It's to display the gospel in grace of Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 11. So what's the purpose of us knowing, men, our role is that we are involved in this group called church, and the home to do what? Put the glory of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ, on display. And so there's that broad category. We want the whole world to know in every area of life that Jesus Christ is Savior and King. That, that's, that's part of our role. But it's not just this broad thing, but it's also very, very personal. It's salvation from the power of sin. Look at verse 12. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so there is salvation from the power of sin. That's part of how we put this on display. We see that it, it, there's, a, there's something that is spiritual and spiritually pragmatic to the, to the gospel, that it changes us, it transforms us, it transforms you, that as you know your role and you live on purpose and you say, my whole purpose in life, men, is to do what? Lead people to? Okay, 
Okay, come on, men. We, come on. Let, let me hear your voice. My, my whole purpose is to lead people to... Okay, Christ worship. You got it. Very good. That's your purpose, that something's happening in your life. You're not the same as yesterday or the day before that, right? Christ is perfect, and you're right with him. If you know Christ as your Savior, you're right with him, and you're getting more and more and more right. right? So you don't have to be perfect. You have to be in Christ, and you have to be following Christ, but, but and, and part of that is, look, Jesus does it all, but notice in this passage, there's effort. There's a training. Right? It's, it's a training. It's not just not a trying. It's not a, oh, man, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do it. You know, if, if, uh, if the Major League Baseball or just any baseball slugger, you know, a guy who's known for being able to hit the long ball, if he goes, ah, oh, I've struck out the last three times, I'm, I'm just not going to step to the plate again. How, how far is he going to last in baseball, guys? He's going to stink, right? What's a good batting average for a, a long ball hitter? Come on, sports, sports guys. 350, which means like, you're striking out how many times out of 10? 6.5. So how many times, guys, you got to step up to the plate? That's every time. Every time. It's training. Right? It's training. And that's what he says here. Training what? To become holy. And he lists some particular things. We won't spend the time to get into those. That would make a great discussion around the dinner table. What does this look like to train in these things? And he says it's, it's salvation. Our, our unity that Jesus bought with his blood puts salvation on display. It, it, it frees us from the power of sin um, through our grace-empowered effort. But it also is salvation from the presence of sin. Note how the passage follows waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ it's freedom from the presence of sin why because we know that we have a home with god forever right when sin will be no more and this changes your identity in this world notice how it finishes here changes your identity um it it says who you are men it says who you are. Notice how it finishes. It, it, it says here that who gave himself up for us to redeem, that means to buy us back. To, he paid for it from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? So you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are God's. You are a particular possession. You are free from the possession of sin. It does not have a hold on you. You are not what you once were. You are now identified as a son of the king. That's who you are. Right? So this is the purpose. When you think about it, this is the purpose of our unity. It's to put all of this on display for the world to see. 
very clearly, for each other to see, for the world to see. It's the purpose. Now, this passage addresses a particular economic unit. How do we know this? Well, there's two clues, and we, in Mother's Day, we looked at this, that it directs moms towards the home in a very particular way. It's very particular with the words. Now, I said this before, that a husband means bound to the house, right? And what we see in the scriptures is that self-governance becomes a basic unit in scripture. And when there is self-governance brought by the goodness of Jesus Christ through his work, that that self-governance is poured into a primary unit called the family, called the home. It's the building block of creation and society and creation. And, and so there's this, it's also an, an economic building block. And so here we see the church, right, is addressing this. Paul, through Titus, is addressing this foundational unit in Scripture. That this, this family is meant to, that the church is meant to be built up by the family. So there's some implications of, of this passage for all of us as men when we look at the purpose of this unity. What, what is God doing in the world? Well, he's using his church to build up others in the family of God, in families, so that our unity in the gospel might be displayed for all to see. That's why together every Sunday we reenact and display for one another through the table of our Lord the unity that he bought with his own blood. So, so this is saying that men, even if you do not have biological children, you serve as a model and an example. Why? Because your purpose is to lead others to worship. Right? If you don't have a father, you have, a, you have fathers in the church. Look around. Will you find perfect fathers? No. But you will find men who are right and growing in the righteousness of Christ. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency in our culture to blame and dismiss, right? We, we see this even when, when it comes to biological family, right? Because we all know the imperfections um, we all know the imperfections of our children as parents. We all know the imperfections of our parents as children. And we tend to dismiss a lot of good things that God has created for us because of the sinfulness that we see. And we ought not, not to do so. But that mentality is continuing to grow. We tend to dismiss the role of the church because we see the failings of the church. One individual writes this. It's a long quote, but it's valuable. So pay attention to this. He writes this in, in talking about this rhetoric and blame that is very much a part of our age. He says this, in all of this, most worrying is the frequent rhetoric that blames the church for her woes. That some Christians have been, that some Christians have been compromised through political engagement is no doubt true. This is hardly unprecedented in church history, but perhaps particularly raw in the polarized world of post-Trump Christianity. When character counts for Clinton but not for Trump, the double standard is embarrassingly obvious. 
But these actions by Christians do not in themselves make the church the culpable agent of her own troubles, let alone the central cause of society's ills. For sure, they do not help the public image of Christianity, but Christians who spend their days playing the blame game must be careful to always point to the church as the solution. Failure to do so is to kill hope. St. Paul was certainly well aware of the failings of Christians, even of the wickedness that they could perpetuate in the church's name, as his blunt letters to various congregations indicate. But he never ceased to present the church flawed, divided, morally compromised as she was, as the meaning and hope of history. By all means, call out the failings of Christians congregations, denominations, left and right, but be specific. Do so without slander and vitriol and make a clear distinction between the church and the specific failings to which you allude in order to promote clear thinking. And remember, if your critique of Christians is not balanced by the Pauline emphasis on the church, the body of Christ, as the answer to the world's problems, then you ultimately offer no true Christian commentary on the contemporary scene. For as soon as you see the church herself as a part of the problem, you have lost the gospel and deprive yourself and your audience of hope. You see that distinction? We understand that when we look at this household, church, and home, that we have to be careful that in our critical age, we don't criticize so much and without discernment and without distinction that we throw out what God has said and what he has created. Be careful. That's a wise, wise warning to all of us. You know, this, when we, we think about this purpose and we think about what's happening here in this worship, in this purpose of building up homes and building up the church to put the gospel on display. It has very practical implications. You know, our nation since 1964 has declared a war on poverty. And that's quite a few years. More than I have been alive. Are we winning no, in fact, it's, it's relatively unchanged. But social scientists, Christian and secular, will all agree that there's a particular formula for a level of economic success. They all agree that there is a, that there is not, there, there is recognizable empirical evidence that shows when you do certain things and when you build a society based on certain things that there is human flourishing. However, despite what's clear and obvious, most of the world is running full tilt in the wrong direction. 
Some of the practical implications are right here as, as Paul addresses older men and younger men and older women and younger women and those that serve as part of this household. Right? The, see, the key to this in understanding this house, dual household concept in each of the passages is actually the bondservants. We won't go, go into slavery. We won't go into all of those kinds of things. We've talked about that before, so this is not an endorsement of, of slavery. But what we see here is we see that those that are economically impoverished are given hope within the household of getting out of their poverty and debt and the possibility of a whole different life, some of which decided to stay in that household, that Christian household, because they were treated so very well. You know what that economic chain is? If you're younger, if you're in school, get these things. What you need is to get trained, get a skill, these days, that may mean going to school, as we think of school, but you may get what you need right in your home, whether that's academic or vocational or both, right in your home. So you, you need to get some, some training and, and then get a job. <laughs> these, are what, these are what they're saying, like, hey, here's the, get a job. Where, was, where did, in this passage, and I'm not going too far outside the text to, to, to see this because of the bondservants. Where did you get a job? You got a job in your home, working for the family business. Get trained, get a job. And, and, and part of this chain is it has to go in this order. Get married and have children, and I would add to that lots of them. Right? That's when, so we've known this before 1964. And you can do your own work and your own research on this. I encourage you to do that. But you see, what we have is we have in our society the inversion of marriage in this household. Um, our, our society is looking at marriage as now as something of people who have wealth. When I make it, when I have all of my ducks in a row, right, when I get my education and I get that job and I have enough money and a house and then I'll think about getting married. In the Bible, we see this is related to the gospel, right? This is how we live out the gospel. What the Bible is saying is that marriage is a foundation for putting this on display. Now that's not to exclude single parents and singles, Right? This includes you, but why? Because there's two households. You're in covenant in one or two of them. But if you're a Christian, you're in covenant. It applies. You have everything you need for life and godliness. So let's look at these roles very briefly and address men. Older men are to give direction Job chapter 12, verse 12 says, Wisdom is with aged men, and with long life is understanding. Right, so um, we tend to have this idea that, um, that well, you, you get old and you become a teenager again. It's called retirement. But the Bible says some different things. 
fact, the Bible says we never really stop working. We just do different things, right? We, we do different things. And, and here, what Job is saying, and Job is a wise man, he's saying that wisdom is with the older and long life is with understanding, it's a, it's a reiteration. Actually, it goes back to the law. The, the law of Moses or forward in Job's case and that he came before Moses most likely. That long life is with understanding. It's not always in the, the, the case with every single man. In fact, the psalm says, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth and I still declare thy wondrous deeds. Like, this, is, this is encouraging, but the opposite is true. That as individuals go through life, some do not declare their wondrous deeds. Why? Because the longer we live, the longer we see a sinful world, the more discouraged people get. And sometimes they just decide to scrap the whole thing and live for themselves. But here in this passage, what Paul is instructing Titus, and Titus is called to do what? To declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you, that, that older men in the church are to give direction, to keep their hand on the wheel and their eyes ahead, their eyes towards Jesus. You think about Moses. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to lead Israel out of bondage from Egypt and into the promised land. And he had a poor speaking ability. He had advanced age, but that did not excuse him from the job. And that does not excuse any one of us. As you get older, men, you still have a job and you still have a role. And it is based on your character. If you ha- if the, the, the role here that you have is to help set direction for God's people, for the households. Why? Because you've been there. You have years behind you. You've seen a lot. You know how it goes. So don't fall asleep at the wheel. Households need you. Not just your own home, but the implications in the passage are all the other homes. The church and all the other homes. You're the ones that young men need to look to for direction and advice. And that's why this char- the character of older men are noted here. Being sober-minded. You need to think clearly. Right? There's, there's something with the wisdom of age, not just age, but the wisdom of age, that's able to kind of clear the clutter and say, this is important. Dignified. Self-controlled. And then sound in three things. Faith, love, and steadfastness. Right? Older men, you put yourself in whatever category. I'm not categorizing you. This is a passage you should get together and talk about. What does it mean to grow older in these things? What does it mean to put on these characteristics as you get older? Young men, pay attention to this and look for the older men that look like this and get your advice and your wisdom from them. There's a wealth of information in this room that God has given through his word for all of us through these men right here. So that's why Paul through Titus and Titus is saying, exhort, don't let any older man disregard this. This is his job. 
Right? He's in the, essentially, he's in the driver's seat in many ways, formally and informally, helping set direction. Become like this. Put on this character. The function is direction. Notice um, if you go back, probably on the same page, to chapter 1, verse 4. Paul addresses Titus. Notice how he addresses him. Titus, my true child in common faith. Paul's older. He's a spiritual mentor. He is not speaking down to Titus. Oh, can you imagine? Think about how when Paul addresses Titus as his true child in faith, how does that make Titus feel? Right? Paul's not speaking down to Titus. What is he doing? Oh, he's speaking with fatherly affection. Right? He's, he's got, even as a man, he's got eyeball to eyeball in Titus's face, right? And he sees this fatherly affection. Right? There's some men in this room that have never experienced that. This is where they get that. There's some men whose fathers never looked at them. Right? And again, guys, if that's you, if you're in that category, be careful that you're not overly critical, that you miss the opportunity for that kind of a charge from another man who loves you deeply and is a fatherly figure to you and a Christian brother. He says this, grace and peace from God the Father. Notice what he's doing in this. What is he doing? It's a man leading another man to what? Where's, come on, men. Come on now. Okay, good. That is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and the children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might give, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Hey, this is what Paul is instructing Titus to instruct other men. Older men, I charge you with these words. Now, younger men. Younger men. Younger men are to give power. Look at verses 6 through 8. Now, it's a little, it's not confusing, but there's a switch here in the language. He's addressing younger men, and he just says self-controlled. But Paul, in how he speaks, he speaks to younger men and then draws his attention to Titus, who is a younger man, and who is the pastor, who's an elder, right? And that's, so we just read the purpose of the book, and so you can understand why this kind of language goes from all younger men to now really addressing Titus. And he says this, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And the shift here, show yourself, now speaking to Titus in all respects, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech, 
that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So the inverse works of this in this passage. He goes from speaking to all young men, be self-controlled, to Titus. And, and the message here is that he's got the attention of all the young men and Titus so that the young men would do as Titus does. So this is an address specifically to Titus, but as well to all young men. Um, he says to them, young men, you're the engine, right? You have, you have, you have power in the sense of, don't, don't, don't think of, of power in this, like um, the way that we tend to talk about it out in our culture, the imbalance of power and who has power, but think about it as an engine. There's power. But I want you to think about it this way. I want you to picture a sailboat on Lake Michigan. We said the older men, where are they on the sailboat? They're that captain with that like, funny hat and the pipe and, the, and they got, you know, they're there with that big wheel. They're setting the direction. If you're on a sailboat, where does the power come from? The wind. So younger men, you're the sail. It's a beautiful picture of, of the gospel. What do you have to do? Just do your role. God's the one who blows into it. You're the one who catches that particular wind. Gather up your energy for God's purpose. That's what a sail does. A sail gathers up what God is already doing and gives energy to everyone, right? It empowers, it moves things along. The older guys, they're tired. They need younger men really important. You have a particular role. So how do you do it? One, like there's one overarching is self-control. Learn to govern yourself. It's one of those governments that we looked at. Learn to govern yourself. You do this through the power of the Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God. So you learn to govern yourself over your time, over your work. Right? So I hear often from younger men, I just don't have time for spiritual things. They don't say that that way to me, but that's really what they mean. I just don't have time for those things. I, I'm going to tell you, this passage tells you, and I will exhort you, you don't have time for any other things if you don't have time for this, to lead others to worship. You're doing the wrong things, even though they're good things, even though they're the things that God instructs you to do, but if your priorities are out of line, you are disordered, your family will be, and you will contribute nothing to that existential purpose for which God has created you. How about your emotion? As men, we're to be self-regulated in our emotion, our tone, our anger, God's created us in certain ways. When we're young, we have lots of energy. Sometimes that energy's got to go somewhere, but here it's saying go in a productive direction. So if you see something that's broken, don't just complain about it. Do something about it. Do something good about it. Do something that Jesus would do in the way Jesus would do about it. Right? Speech. But also here, it's interesting. He says to, to Titus and to young men that you're to do something to your enemy. Did you notice that? 
What are you to do to your enemy? It says here that they're actually to put their enemy to shame. To put their enemy to shame. Did you notice that? That you should know God's word and conduct yourself in in such a way that through teaching with integrity, that you ought to know how to fight. You ought to know how to fight in order to put your enemy to shame. Now, there's some other things in Scripture that balance with that. Paul doesn't bring them in here, into this passage. I won't either. He says, put your enemy to shame. In other words, know your scripture so well that you know your enemy, right? You're out to slay the dragon with God's word in everyday life, that you put them to shame with your understanding of how this world operates and the God who's created it. You're you're to put the enemy down. Listen, I think there's a lot of young men who don't know two things. One, they really have an enemy. They don't know that they have an enemy. And there's some who get confused with who that enemy is. Know you have an enemy. Know who your enemy is and then slay that dragon every day. Right? That's going to require some of the things that Paul mentions earlier and later. Some of that training in righteousness. The Apostle Paul, he tells the Corinthians that they shouldn't be ignorant in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He wants them to know about fatherhood. He wants them to know, Paul wants the Corinthians now, a different church in a different place, to know that their fathers were all under the cloud of God and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Jewish fathers, the Jewish fathers in in the wilderness. He, He tells them about that in order that they would see, they would understand and know who the enemy is. To know that the enemy's active. And so here we see in this passage the purpose of manhood and fatherhood. Guys, we're called to lead others to worship. We're called to lead others to worship. I'm thankful for every single man that's here in church today. You led your family to worship. You will be blessed by this. You're building this household. And we will continue to build this household. How do we do that? We do that by helping you build your household. God has a kingdom, and so do you. You have a kingdom. You're active in building that kingdom. Your kingdom is to be built in such a way so that it fits hand in glove with the kingdom of God. That's how God has designed it. That's how your father, your heavenly father, has designed it. And he himself has come to be an example for you so that you know how to build it. The way up is the way down. It's through the gospel. That's what he says here. Oh, may the grace of God appear in your family 
and in this church, bringing salvation to everyone who sees it as we train together to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly right now in this present age. As we wait, we are people that are zealous for good works. We are not just simply watching our watch and waiting for Jesus to come back, but we are waiting. That is our hope, our blessed hope, when we will see Jesus appear. Jesus, who is the great God, the King of kings, and our Savior. He who gave himself up for us as a ransom to rescue us from all lawlessness, including our own, and then to make us a family, to give us a name, to purify us from all uncleanliness, and to make us a people, a possession, and to empower us to do what is good. Men, declare these things. Declare them. Exhort and rebuke. You have gospel authority. Exercise it and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and I thank you for these men, older and younger. And I thank you for their work in each other's lives. We know that we have the spirit in the word of God, but forgive us from divorcing that from what you have given us, the church, other people, relationships, time together, instruction, wisdom. Um, We've taken this out of context and we've made it a learning academic thing. It's not our intent. In fact, for many, it's the desire to know God's word, but we need to know God's word in the context, in the way that you have created us and made us to be. And so, Lord, help us to follow your word so that above all things, the gospel may be known. And then as a result, we would see generations that follow, not just one or two, but 10 upon 10 generations that are impacted by what happens in this little church and little churches like this all over the world in this present age today. We pray this in Jesus' name and ask for his blessing. Amen.